Welcome back to the final episode of this special COVID-19 three-part series by the Southern Center for Inequality Studies and Rethinking Economics for Africa. My name is Shaira Kala. I'll be your host as we weave together key insights into the socioeconomic effects of this global crisis. In the last two episodes, we spoke in detail about unemployment, precarity, poverty and inequality. Now we turn to some of the macroeconomic and institutional ideas that could help us confront the many challenges exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic. So where to from here? Now it is the vision of the Freedom Charter that underpins our constitution today. It is the vision that informs the National Development Plan and our vision towards 2030. And it is the vision that must inform everything that we do. On the 7th of May, 1996, when finalizing the constitution, a young Soro Ramaphosa, the ANC's main negotiator, begged 20 more minutes from the 50 exhausted politicians who made up the assembly. He reminded them that sacrificing 20 minutes was worth it for a constitution that would last hundreds of years. Some say that South Africa has one of the best constitutions in the world. But Professor Tsepo Madlingozi argues that from the perspectives of victims of systemic social exclusion, the constitution does not translate into decolonization and liberation. Whatever your views, the rights in this constitution for even basic necessities of a dignified life, like food, shelter, education, and healthcare, are funded in part by the revenue that the government collects through taxes. How this revenue is allocated is contested terrain. Kirsten Pearson from the Budget Justice Coalition explains how the relationship between South Africa's constitution and the material conditions of citizens has a price. The Budget Justice Coalition is a coalition of around 20 different progressive civil society organizations and also individual researchers. And what our focus is on uh, is doing budget analysis and also education. And we want people to be able to participate in the budget process. So we want to advance constitutional rights because we know that very often the ability to advance constitutional rights has to do uh, with the price tag. And um, often through public budgets, one can increase access to availability of water or uh, increase access to availability of food um, through social grants, for example. So our members analyze a wide range of things like education budgets, health budgets. Uh, we look at the social development budget and um, energy budgets and environmental um, budgets. So when it comes to the time of the budget speech in February, that's when we do a lot of analysis. So we try to make uh, members of the public aware of the opportunities during the year to participate in the budget process. People's rights are closely intertwined with the budget. For me and a lot of the Budget Justice Coalition members, we worry that during a crisis, it's often a time when transparency closes down, it closes down even more, 
and then you may see that we find certain um, structural adjustments coming in perhaps because we've taken loans from the World Bank and the IMF. Um, the Treasury insists that this is not a problem and we shouldn't worry about this, uh, but you know, I think a lot of us have seen and done research on the impacts of structural adjustment in, in the past um, and how these things play out in our in our sort of nation states decision making processes. So yeah, definitely worried about that aspect of the stimulus money where it's coming from. Adjunct Professor Michael Sachs from the Southern Centre for Inequality Studies used to be the head of the budget office at National Treasury. We spoke to him about what the public purse would look like this year and if international loans were on the cards. The starting point is that uh, we are experiencing uh, an unprecedented macroeconomic shock. And in order for the public sector or in order for society to, to survive that shock, the public sector needs to play a role of absorbing uh, part of the shock onto its balance sheet. And what that means is that the, the financial kind of losses that people will sustain during the shock need to be accommodated by the public sector. Uh, and South Africa, although we have a, a, a terrible debt position as a government, if you look across uh, the public sector, we're not in too bad shape. Uh, we have a very well-funded pension system, public employees' pension system. We have large surpluses in the unemployment insurance fund. Uh, the, the Reserve Bank has a, has a strong balance sheet. And that we need to use all of those instruments together to absorb uh, part of this shock that has hit us. So we're going to have a collapse in government revenue. Uh, it's really too early to say how big that is going to be. The difference between the revenue we thought we would have and the revenue we actually had will have to be financed by borrowing. And uh, borrowing, uh, the, a question mark arises because borrowing is a voluntary transaction with two sides, a lender and a borrower. And both are entering into the transaction uh, as a matter of choice. Uh, of course, there may be situations where you're forced to borrow. And I mean, in a sense, we are forced to borrow in this situation. But at least on the lender side, that means government creditors, essentially, or public sector creditors overseas uh, who will lend to us in dollars. And the most obvious one of those is the IMF. The IMF has many different instruments. There are different windows at the IMF that you can borrow from. The, the kind of rapid financing that uh, we are currently seeking or that government is currently seeking uh, has very low conditionality. So, so, so we can get about $5 billion from the IMF without conditions. Uh, but we may not be able to. And the reason we may not be able to is because the, the IMF may not be of the view that South Africa is in a sustainable fiscal position. In other words, they would need to be uh, convinced that we're able to pay the debt back now. And that's going to be a tough call. Ironically, Milton Friedman 
A founding neoliberal economist once said, Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. So, what ideas are lying around? Popular ideas emerging in monetary and fiscal policy are quantitative easing and a universal basic income gaining traction in the global north. Kirsten Pearson elaborates on the UBI debate. A lot of those who advocate for the basic income grant will um, speak at length about why a universal grant makes more sense than a targeted grant. So with a universal grant, everybody gets it. There's no means testing. You don't have to provide extensive amounts of paperwork to be eligible for a grant. And um, the attraction of that is that it reduces administration costs and it also supports people who would currently fall through um, the cracks or not be eligible uh, for the grant because, for example, if you're undocumented um, or you are um, a foreigner, you may currently not be able to receive that um, special COVID grant and a basic income grant that would be universal, meaning for everybody. And then, you know, you could claw back the um, uh, amount from people who don't really need a grant through a tax um, mechanism. Uh, so there's pros and cons for both approaches. In part one, we uncovered the challenges of poverty and in part two of unemployment and precarity. We caught back up with Ihsan Basir to get his thoughts on a UBI. Before this, the, the poverty rate in South Africa is just completely unsustainable. Even without lockdown, you have 50% of, of South Africans in terms of expenditure are below the actual poverty line, which uh, today is around 1,280. And so there's obviously a massive need to have a basic income grant because people have a right to, 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 be able to have a basic standard of living. But there is a question for me, and I don't know how it's resolved in terms of finance. The numbers that we put to it quickly was that it could cost up to hundreds of billions of rand to, to implement a, a basic income grant. And yes, part of that might be uh, recaptured through tax, but not, not, a, not, not a whole lot through the people that are paying tax. Tax would have to increase significantly. I think that there's a space for wealth tax, there's space for an increase in personal income tax. But is there space for an increase of the order of 500 billion rand? Is there space for a 500 billion rand increase to the budget? I'm not sure. And that's why I think that that conversation has to happen simultaneously with the conversation of what the new economy looks like. You have this massive moment where the economy, whether we like it, whichever direction it goes, will be restructured. But probably this is going to last for for up to five, 10 years. And the kind of, um, in terms of the, the full ramifications, and the point is that um, the state of the working class right now, given the, the, the weak state of the, of the unions, um, given the, the relative disorganization of a kind of, some kind of mass movement, I basically, have, the, my, my outlook is pessimistic for the next few years because this restructuring is, is, is very clearly going to be used by business uh, to, to skew things even further in their favor. And uh, the question is, uh, are movements ready to resist that and to make actual gains?
Uh, and so the, the, the work right now is extremely important. But at the moment, I'm struggling to see what form that's going to take. I think the first thing to be uh, very, to understand is that it's kind of where does income come from? Where does value come from in a capitalist society? And it doesn't come from uh, you know, taxes or government spending or, or borrowing or, or anything like that. It comes from people working together to produce things. Right. That's what GDP is. The standard of living of South Africans or of Africans depends on the capacity of South Africans and Africans to produce uh, value for themselves. And hopefully that can be exported to others. There's huge uncertainty about how is the economy going to look after the shock has passed. And one of the likely outcomes is that the level, the, the, the formal sector of the economy in South Africa will be a lot smaller. The level of formal sector employment will be less. And these are not things that can be, you know, that's not a problem that can be solved by kind of macroeconomic policy, in my view. It's a problem that has to be solved by structural change and, and what has always been called development. It's time to take greater risk. It's time to do things that were unthinkable last year. And, and I think that that applies both to fiscal policy and monetary policy. Uh, my concern is that it's, I, I think there is a, a there, there, there's some, there's some uh, kind of, uh, some people are of the view that if you use fiscal and monetary policy uh, with uh, it's kind of that is where the solution comes. I have a different view. I think fiscal and monetary policy play a critical can play a critical role in in navigating through these waters. But over the but South Africa does not face a a South Africa is not a developed country. All developing countries face a problem of transforming the structure of their underlying economic relations because they have whether it's kind of landlords or a latifundia class or oligarchy in Latin America or kind of whether you want to call it white monopoly capital or whatever you want to call it in South Africa. Uh, so South Africa has highly segregated urban spaces in which the poor don't have access to, to, li to, to, to living spaces in affluent areas, right? I think that's a central developmental challenge that South Africa faces. And if we were able to accommodate the poor to a much greater extent and accommodate low-income workers to a much greater extent in affluent areas, we would have a massive impact on, on the things that you're raising, the power relations, the structure of the economy. Printing money is not a substitute for that. And, and let me express a concern about imagining the future, as you put it. I come from a generation that, that, that's, that lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, that, 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 that was really the defining event, I suppose, of, the, of, of, of you know, the world in my lifetime so far, apart from this one, maybe. 
the Bolsheviks, going back to the, to the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks didn't just imagine a better world and, and debate it. They took power and they imposed their will using force on society in order to reconstruct uh, Soviet society. And they did that using instruments of social mobilization. Some people might agree with that. That's a good thing. Other people might say it's the crime of the century or whatever. I'm not taking a moral position on it. All I'm saying is that what is the movement of people, organized, clear, uh, motivated, that is going to transform these ideas into a, a different material reality? So I hear a lot of ideas, and many of them are good ideas. Some of them are not so good ideas. And, and I would love to live in a world that is environmentally sustainable and uh, with great with equality and, and different power relations and all of these things. But I don't really see the movement emerging. So, so I know that in South Africa, we have a movement. It's the ANC. It's governing. It's likely to be, in my view, strengthened by this moment and is likely to continue governing. It's, it's fundamentally divided and weak, and its connections to the broad mass of the population are being, have been eroded, and there's all kinds of problems there. So I think it is a moment for experimentation, and it is a moment for new ideas. We, we are basking in the luxury of thinking too much and not engaging in the hard work of actually organizing people to make these into a reality. So, I mean, this is the thing is that I see a lot of in the academic space, in the NGO space, in the what is called civil society space, which I actually think is an NGO space. You know, I see all kinds of people saying we must reimagine in the world like this and that. But mm -hmm. I don't think that that reimagining is going to happen. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a chicken and egg situation where somebody can say, well, how can you have an, a movement unless you have an idea? I agree. But uh, there's a lot of ideas and not that many movements. It's likely that this time will pass. At some point, the world will generate enough immunity or find a vaccine. At that point, however, the world will not look the same. But what does that mean for our response and for how we think about a post-COVID reconstruction? We can take substantial parts of this shock onto our balance sheet as the public sector. We can borrow and we can liquidate our assets, can sell off our family silver and do all kinds of things as a country to absorb this shock and to make it less damaging to, to, to the country. But the question remains, what will be our situation after the shock has passed? Will we return to a, a path of growth and development uh, that we were on before the shock? And in South Africa's case, the unfortunate truth is that we were not on a path of growth and development before this shock hit us. So if we absorb all of these liabilities, all of this debt onto our balance sheet as the public sector, and then once the shock has passed, uh, we are unable to rebuild our resources, then we will face a situation of, of national bankruptcy, essentially. 
And this is really the conundrum we face. The question a famous Bolshevik would ask at this point is, what is to be done? You know, how, how can we restructure our society in very fundamental ways in order to, to adapt to a new situation that's going to be very much less forgiving and much less uh, uh, tolerant of, of uh, in a sense, I think over the last 25 years since the dawn of democracy, in a sense, we have had, we, we're all dissatisfied by the amount of progress we have made, but we have been operating in an environment that allowed us space to, to experiment, to, uh, you know, the environment was more patient with us. We could run up large deficits and debts on the fiscus. Um, we could get away with quite a bit. I think the environment we're going to face after the COVID shock has passed as South Africa is going to be much more similar to the environments that many other African countries have faced for the last 25 years. And that's a, a, an environment in which you do not have the space to, to move. You do not have the, the financial resources to, to, that give you the luxury of experimenting uh, on a wide and broad basis. And, and, and you're forced to, to uh, do things uh, or, or the consequences of not acting are felt very, very directly. Uh, when you don't act to resolve problems. South African policymakers often pat themselves on the back for drafting great policies and pointing to implementation for their downfall. At the same time, we are halfway through the timeline of the National Development Plan and very few targets have been met. The question remains, is policy that is never implemented good policy or just a wish list? Apart from poor implementation, Another critique of policy is the absence of political will. Usually people think of, of uh, state capacity in terms of the administrative capability of the state to implement political decisions. And obviously to compare our state, say the US state or the UK state or the German state or even the Chinese state, uh, we, we're far from those in terms of uh, the capacity to implement decisions. So let me give you an example. We a decision is taken now to introduce a new social grant to, to, to cover uh, the COVID crisis, particularly for people who fall outside the rest of the social grant system. Very good decision. Uh, how, and the idea is that, you know, you apply for this grant through some kind of cell phone message and then it checks your ID number against all of the other um, uh, databases that government has, including the other social grant databases and checks whether you are uh, receiving any other source of money. And if you're not, you're eligible for the grant. Great idea. Time will tell whether we have, whether things work as simply and straightforwardly as the designers of this grant. And I imagine that there will be a lot of administrative uh, challenges uh, and even, I mean, if you look at something like the existing child support grant, the uptake of the child support grant is not universal. Uh, so uh, even in the last five years or so, there have been massive campaigns to kind of extend the uptake of the child support grant. So it's not clear that this grant, whereas in another society, say in the USA, 
when they decide to mail a check to every American, they have a very well-organized social security and tax system in, in which everybody has a social security number and everyone has a tax number. And I'm probably oversimplifying it, but they can literally press a button and send money into every home. We don't have that system. But there's a second sense in which we don't have capacity that I actually think is much more important, and that is the political capacity to, to, to uh, design effective policy. So when we uh, make decisions, are we, do, do, do we have a social consensus that we've built around the execution of a decision, or is the decision simply seen as the pet project of one particular group in society? Uh, that everybody else militates against. So often we make decisions uh, which avoid the political consequences of the decisions that we have made. And as a consequence of that, the decisions do not get implemented. Uh, so, for example, we decide to implement NHI, National Health Insurance, but politically the question might arise are we prepared to take on the medical establishment and doctors in particular who get paid very high salaries in South Africa uh, in order to, to uh, execute this national health insurance in an affordable sense? Whenever you make a decision, there are political trade-offs that, that you need to confront. And I think our main implementation challenge is the failure to accept uh, those those uh, political consequences and and take them on and and uh, accept them as a consequence of our policy. So, which is why you tend to get a lot of pronouncements that sound very good, and then later on people come back and said, no, we had a really good policy, but uh, we we lacked implementation capacity. When actually we did not really have a good policy. We just had a a, a nice pretty idea that everybody would agree with. There's no development without self-reliance, without uh, ourselves. If we're not prepared to impose the sacrifices on ourselves, then it's like we're not going to get the resources from somewhere else. It's like we're still, uh, so, so we're advancing across a broad front. We're advancing across a broad front that includes uh, free higher education, improved basic education, uh, proper in conditions for public sector workers, um, uh, national health insurance. Uh, th there are many, many, there's a broad front of, of uh, things that we would like to, to achieve. And also we would like to sustain the foundation we've built so far. And uh, that's, a, that's a situation which renders you vulnerable. Because if we were just saying, no, the important thing is education and we're not prepared to sacrifice education, let's talk about anything else. And then you have a serious conversation about healthcare and about remuneration of doctors instead of professors. So Cuba has one of the best healthcare systems in the world. I think the problem we face is that we, we, we're trying to advance across such a broad front that it's not clear what is not negotiable. In, in a sense, nothing is negotiable. And if nothing is negotiable, then everything is negotiable. And that's where you can, the whole thing can collapse. We need to prioritize in a very real sense. Serious political positions will be taken during the pandemic. And if South Africa is to undergo meaningful economic restructuring, 
difficult trade-offs will have to be made. At the same time, there is clearly work that can be done in strengthening a weakened state so that whatever decisions are made, they are implemented. The strong state part of a developmental state must be taken seriously. But the difference between us and a developmental state is that you have third force. And the third force is an expert bureaucracy that is able to uh, um, take political objectives and translate them into uh, um, effective government action by the state using the coercive force of the state, I think is largely absent in South Africa because uh, you, you have, I mean, essentially the, 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 the public service has been cannibalized by constituency politics. Uh, all senior government positions are, are political appointments. And this third pillar, the state bureaucracy, is also uh, where it exists, embedded in particular social forces. Uh, professionals, the middle class, you know, uh, teachers, whatever the case may be. Uh, and I think that's really the missing element in South Africa is that we need to create an autonomous, effective state capacity that can stand up to both capital and constituency politics and articulate a, a way forward uh, that is grounded in a governmentality. Can we construct in a genuine sense a patriotic bourgeoisie that is fully autonomous from party politics, that ensures that things like that the bottom lines, the, no, the non-negotiables, as we were discussing earlier, are enforced no matter who is in power. And I think uh, we have to embark on a different course. But if I were to, to, to get into that, I would say we need to mobilize black excellence into the states. Young black professionals, we have a huge wealth of young black professionals in this society, and, and we can create our own ethics of professionalism, but it means that you don't, uh, you, you don't deviate for political convenience because you are a creature of your political principle. On the one hand, the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed resilience and innovation in Africa, too often erased by a world accustomed to expecting failure and crisis on the continent. But on the other hand, it has revealed the continent's political, economic and health vulnerabilities, manufactured and maintained by a nightmare of unequal engagement with the world. A nightmare from which we are still trying to awake. Macroeconomic and institutional approaches will be a crucial part of the vehicle that drives us towards a society that, on the long road, deals with inequality, unemployment, and the precarity that drags along a shocking level of poverty. At the same time, it's clear that this vehicle needs a range of other parts. It also needs community organizing, labor organizing, and the organizing of a strong democratic state. Thank you for engaging with us. We hope that this has been a thought and action provoking experience. This special COVID-19 three-part series was brought to you by the Southern Center for Inequality Studies and Rethinking Economics for Africa. We hope that you've enjoyed listening. This podcast series was produced by Shaira Kala and Kamal Ramratert. Thanks to Soul Providers for their assistance and a big shout out to Harry Adu Faulkner who made a huge input through recording and editing. 
A special thank you to Neo Mosala, Amara Garda, Jezri Krinsky, Shannon Wardlaw, Bonolo Moikanyane, David Francis, Arabo Ewinyu, Emma Reiters, and all of the colleagues who helped to shape this final product from Skis and Reefer.